my, uh, my television remote has this marvelous button on it uh, that does perhaps the, the greatest thing, I guess, in television history. I can push that button and immediately that annoying commercial goes silent. I can push that button and obnoxious sportscasters and news commentators are silenced. And I can watch the game in peace. I can read the subtitles under the news report and don't have to listen to all of the other stuff. And it's a wonderful thing, the mute button. It's a wonderful thing. And we are, by God's creation, made with an internal mute button. We just tune out things. We turn them off. And I'm afraid that we often unintentionally cause others to hit that internal mute button to the Christian message. And we do so by our attitude toward the very people Jesus meant that message for. And that's exactly what might have happened, what could have happened in the event recorded for us in our text. But it didn't. Read with me Acts chapter 11, the first 18 verses. The word of God. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. That was the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Now stop there a minute and just ponder that. This vision of the sheep comes down out of heaven and a voice speaks. If that were you, you'd have heard what was said. And in my Bible I'm reading up here, those words, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, are in red print. That simply means that the translators and publishers take those to be words of a voice that has been heard before. It's the voice of Jesus by that reckoning. It's the word 
of God. And Peter says, no. No, that violates my personal code. So we go on. But the voice answered, he said, but I said, by no means Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter still didn't get it. This happened three times. Then all was drawn up again into heaven. Now, there's something else you need to note about this. When something is said three times in Scripture, or two times, when it's repeated, repetition usually in the Bible is a means of emphasis. What it's saying, this is important. Three times means this is really important. And we've also already noted the fact that Peter's rather dense. <laughs> He's slow, uh, like so many of us. So it's drawn up again into heaven, verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit of God, who moved men to write, who moved Luke to write these very words for our instruction as a call to us to obedience. O Spirit of God, Write these same words on our minds, our hearts, our wills, and plant them in our souls this very day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter's critics complaint turned to praise when, uh, when Peter began to explain the circumstances surrounding Cornelius' conversion. Here's Roman number one. The first thing we need to talk about is Cornelius. Roman number one, Cornelius. He's the guy that's not mentioned in the 18 verses I just read, and yet he's the guy that the 18 verses are primarily about. 
He's the guy from chapter 10 to whom Peter came after seeing the vision and brought the word, words of life. He was a good man, this man Cornelius. He was a religious man. He was a God-fearing man. He was a generous man, a giving man. He was a praying man. And he was, I would say, a strong and brave man. He commanded a hundred Roman soldiers. But there was, well, let me back up. He was the sort of man you wouldn't mind calling dad or son or brother or husband or friend. He was that kind of man. But one kind of man he wasn't. He wasn't a saved man. Flip it around, he was lost. Good man that was lost. Now, how do I know that? I have an angel's word for it. An angel said so. Not to me, to Cornelius. Verse 13, and he told us how he had seen, how Cornelius had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Not only Cornelius was lost, his family was lost. Not only did the gospel come to Cornelius, it came to his whole Household, and there's much that we could say about that that we won't. But it's not unimportant. There may very well, and this is a little bit of a tangent, there may very well this morning be a Cornelius or two or more here among us. Uh, wouldn't be unheard of. Good men, good women, good young people sitting in the church pew. Good people, religious people, God-fearing folks, generous, praying, but not saved just lost. Cornelius was lost. He needed to hear the gospel. He hear, needed to hear about Jesus and what Jesus came to do and what Jesus did. And I would say that you have heard those words anyway. You who have been here any length of time at all, I know you have. But there's hearing and there's hearing. There's hearing that makes us nod our head and we walk off and go our own way and say, wasn't that interesting? Well, that was a delightful way to spend an hour on a Sunday morning or that was a horrible, boring way to spend an hour, whatever. And it makes no difference whatsoever what it was in this church. And then there's that hearing that changes everything. Mind, heart, will, soul, life. 
There's that kind of hearing that changes your thinking, that changes your feelings, that changes your actions, that takes over, and you're a changed person, a new person in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do so many other things take those priorities in our life? Athletics, academics, personal desires, personal needs, personal wants, selfish things, whatever they are that that come into our lives and and fill our lives and, and take precedence and priority over our salvation, over the Lord Jesus Christ and his place in our life. Now, I'm not saying that the issue is conversion. I'm saying it may be conversion or the lack thereof. Our hearing of the gospel and yet never ever to the point where we're changed, where we're made new, where we have a new mind, a a new heart, a new will, a changed soul, a changed life. And we have to leave that there. But you ponder that. So we have going these. Roman numeral two is Peter. How did Cornelius hear the gospel? What happened? Peter came and spoke the gospel to him and his household. Why did Peter do that? Because God changed Peter. You see, when we're converted, we have a new mind, a new heart, a new will, new way of thinking, new way of feeling, new way of doing. And yet it's not totally so. The rest of the Christian life is is growth and change in those areas. Always new ways of thinking, always new way of, of feeling, always new expanded ways of doing and new reasons for it, new motives. And God changed the mind, the heart, and the will of Peter. And in so doing, overrode both his religious convictions and his cultural prejudices. Peter was a man of his time and place. He was a Christian man, a Jewish Christian man, just exactly like his critics. His critics faulted him. Did you catch that when I read it? faulted him not for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. They faulted him for fraternizing with those same Gentiles. It's all right, maybe for them to be saved, but you ate with them. Now, Jesus had dealt 
with the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He had done away with them. And yet in Jerusalem, among many, if not most, if not all, of the Jewish Christians in that day, the Gentiles, who, by the way, still observed those dietary laws, witnessed Peter's reaction to his vision. They took issue with Peter going to the Gentiles because, you see, the Gentiles did not observe those rules. And so the fear was, Peter, you may have eaten unclean food in their house. You may have violated all of our traditions, all of our cultural things. And it was much more cultural than it was religious. Jesus had already dealt with all that stuff. It would help you to understand, you who grew up in South Louisiana. I grew up in Orleans Paris and New Orleans and on the North Shore. I spent well my 13 years of grammar and high school in Orleans Parish and St. Tammany Parish public schools a long time ago. I ate every lunch every week in the cafeteria of those public schools. I don't know how many Fridays that adds up to. Every Friday we went into and on not one of those fires was I served anything looking like me. Public school, but the culture in both places was at least 90% of the in that day. And Roman Catholics were forbidden to eat meat. So I grew up not eating meat at lunch, and we never ate meat for some reason on Friday night. Yeah, I know the reason. We went out to eat seafood. Every Friday night. I got married, we went out to eat seafood. Every Friday night. Because when his family had done so, our family had done so, what you did 50 years ago. Somewhere along that, in there, even as a high school college or maybe later. The Pope even said, look, we're going to wait for that. It's all I have to eat meat for the one thousand feet on fire. I was thirty years old. Never been a Roman Catholic for one second in those thirty years. I went out with our Roman Catholic neighbors from across the street on a Friday evening to Charlie's Steakhouse in New Orleans. Had a T-bone steak. I can describe that meal to you. And I felt so guilty. <laughs> Roman Catholic, a couple across the table, but hey, one ain't guilty at all. Dead and absolved. The Pope said, it's good. And, and it was a while getting over that kill. I just, something didn't, it just wasn't quite right. I had become a Christian at least by that point, but it, it just didn't seem right. So finally I took it to Jesus and got rid of my guilt. 
was purely cultural. That's sort of the thing that was going on with the critics of Peter. And we laugh about it, but it's really a dangerous thing how culture can invade the faith. How these things that are cultural norms become religious norms. It's so dangerous that Luke deals with it three times in the book of Acts. Again, there's that idea of repetition. It's important. There was a book, I've never read, read the book, but uh, there is a book. Uh, it still is. It's, I like the title, Adventures in Missing the Point. How the culture-controlled church neutered the gospel. And you don't have to sit there and think very long of how the infringement of our culture upon the gospel has taken all the saving power out of it. And, and that's what Peter's critics were in danger of doing. Here it comes. Those who have been here the last month, you know, probably know what's coming. There's a silence. And then. But God changed things by changing Peter and his understanding of culture. See, that vision wasn't just about food. Yeah, it used to, all of those animals in the sheep But it wasn't just about food at all, was it? Some writer talks about the sheep really being the church or the kingdom or salvation. It took three times for that sheet to come down before Peter finally got it. And then God immediately confirmed it because Peter may not have quite had it. And so the sheet goes up and there's a knock on the door and there are three guys have come from Caesarea off on the other, you know, miles away, 60 miles away, and they've come to ask him to come with them. They're obviously Gentiles. One of them is a Roman soldier. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Peter, go with these guys. And there's an angel in the vision that he when he gets there. And the word of God you got it. I wonder how long it'll take for all of us, all of us, to get it. But not only did Peter get it, the church got it as well. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
There's more involved than just Cornelius' salvation here, though. There was the salvation of the church. You see, if this hadn't taken place, the church would just be some inconsequential sect within Judaism. It was right at that point, depending on what those Jewish Christians did, that largely determined whether the church would really be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and have a universal message that would go out to the entire world or if it had been this little piece of Judaism. Something like your appendix. Sort of appendix on the side. I didn't know something, but who knows what. William Barclay wrote, we usually don't realize how near Christianity was to becoming only another kind of Judaism. So there's the text. Number number three is the point. They don't have to be like us to be Christians. Do you get that? See, we, we so often miss the point. Remember Jesus talking to the disciples and they're all upset about this and that? And he has to remind them, look, and I'm paraphrasing, look, just because they're not like you, just because they're not with you, doesn't for a minute mean they're not with me. Get it? You and I need to remember that. Kent Hughes preached a sermon in this text. And he told the story of Muhammad Gandhi. Everybody know Muhammad Gandhi. You who don't know Muhammad Gandhi, you know how to use Google. Google him. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. Do that when you get on. If we don't have time to explain who he was. He's an Indian, obviously and affected the world and affected the civil rights movement in this country and a whole lot of other things. Mahatma Gandhi was studying in England and he read the New Testament and he was gripped by it. And he saw in the Gospels, in this man, Jesus, in the Gospel message, the answer to the problem past in Indian society. And so he read it and he reread it anyway. And then he went into a church to st- speak to the pastor about salvation and Christian doctrine. And he walked up the steps of the church. And he walked into the building and was greeted by the ushers who said, you'd be more comfortable worshiping with your people. And they turned him away. 
And I wish to God I could say that's the only time that's ever happened in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. But you and I know better. What a tragedy! I mean, for Gandhi. Yeah, he walked away and he said, huh, Christianity has their own problems with caste. Why don't I just stay in? And he did. A tragedy for India. But the greatest tragedy is for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a more contemporary issue. Some of us spent 30 days, 30 days of Ramadan that ended Saturday Friday, praying for Islam. Praying for the conversion of the Muslims during this most holy period. Every day praying for a different part of Islam. A lot of different parts. I am. It's over now. Here's my question Are you and I prepared for how God might answer (laughs) those prayers for the conversion of Muslims? these people need? Cornelius needed the gospel. He needed Jesus. And he found Jesus. What did Gandhi need? The gospel. Jesus. And he came to the church. And he went away empty-handed. And he never found Jesus. What do all those Muslims need? The gospel? Jesus? Not just those gospels over there. The gospels over there over there. The Muslims next door in our neighborhood, down the street, around the corner, that we run into in Walmart and Walgreens and wherever we shop. They need the gospel. They need Jesus. In the little book that we used for prayer guide, there was a quote The threat of Islam is not hollow. Make no doubt about that. Islam is a totalitarian ideology that crushes dissent wherever it arises. But Muslims are not an ideology. They are men and women, and I would add children, Lost without a savior. And how will they come to know him? 
Who is your Cornelius? Yeah, they're those people. They're just different from us. Whatever the difference might be, there are all sorts of differences. They're just not like us. But they need Jesus. Who's your Gandhi? Who's the person that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how will he or how will she hear it and find Jesus? Well, start winding up here. The gospel tells us that God's no respecter of persons. If he were, you note this, you and I would be lost. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us, most of us, all of us, I don't know if there's anybody in here with Jewish roots or not. Perhaps, if so, well, it's not all of us, but most of us. This is us. Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. All of you remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You know what comes next? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body to the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the throne of the Father. Chapter 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery that is something something not known to us, not knowable by us, unless God reveals it to us. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit in the first century. This mystery is that the Gentiles, you and me, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery, you see, is what was revealed to Peter in the vision of the sheet coming down. 
was all about us. We're all those unclean animals and things in that sheet. And if Peter hadn't been obedient to that vision, if Peter hadn't heeded the call to go speak those words by which Cornelius and his family would be saved, if because of cultural, racial, or religious prejudices the gospel had been muted at that place and that point in time in history, if the gospel hadn't gone to Cornelius in all of its fullness and all of its freedom and all of its saving power, if Cornelius had been required to become a Jew first, if Cornelius and his fellow Gentile believers hadn't been recognized as part of the one church of Jesus Christ, Where would you be this morning? <laughs> Not here. Not here. You would still be separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You would still be strangers to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. gospel came to Cornelius and because it came to Cornelius it came also to us to us Gentiles this is the conclusion so at the end of the day it's all about God's grace to sinners isn't it And if that's the case, then how can you and I ever stand in God's way by not welcoming and recognizing and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they, the critics, fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, when they fell silent, I don't believe that that means that every one of them was in accord with what Peter said. I think what it means is they had no answer to give. And the reason I say that is this will come up again and it'll come up again in the book of Acts. And it has been coming up again and again and again until this very day. And will until the Lord returns, I'm afraid. So Hughes in his sermon said, Prejudice or elitism on the lips of a believer is an obscenity. Whether it be racial, national, cultural, or social. God needs I like 
your Christianity. I don't like your Christians. Let us repent. Let us repent this morning of those ugly things in our lives and in our practice, both personal and corporate, that mute the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn others away, not just from us, but from him. God help us. God help us to be the creatures that we are in Jesus Christ. By the renewing of our minds, renewing of our wills, renewing of our hearts, the renewing of our very souls. God have mercy upon us. In Jesus Christ. God be gracious to us. Enable us to love as we ought to love. Enable us to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us winsome. Make us all those things we're so often not. And forgive us for being those things that we should not. For Jesus' sake, amen.